part of what we're learning is coming from incidents like the Fukushima plant and all of the waste, uh, solid and otherwise, that were released into the ocean. Do they disperse? Do they stay concentrated in currents? Uh, how long do they remain recognizable? This is all stuff we are still learning about how the ocean functions and how we can affect that functioning. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams coming to you from Southern California. I have two books out titled How to Get Sued and The Sled. Well, today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're continuing our series on environmental law, where we cover cradle-to-grave treatment of chemicals and our laws on environmental biology. As we near the end of our environmental law series this year, we're going to turn to our beloved oceans. You may not know it, but the ocean covers 71% of the Earth's surface, holding about 96.5% of all of the Earth's water. So it's pretty important. Well, the Marine Protection Research and Sanctuaries Act of 1972, also known as MPRSA or the Ocean Dumping Act, is one of several key environmental laws passed by the U.S. Congress in 1972. The act regulates the disposition of any material, any material into ocean waters, unless expressly excluded under the act. Well, in this episode, we're going to spotlight the Marine Protection Research and Sanctuaries Act, focusing on its origin, history, purpose, and impact. And to speak more on this topic, we're joined today by our guest, Professor Robin Craig, the Robert C. Packard Trustee Chair in Law from USC Gould School of Law. Robin Craig specializes in all things water, including the relationships between climate change and water, the Water Energy Food Nexus, the Clean Water Act, the intersection of water issues and land issues, ocean and coastal law, marine biodiversity, marine protected areas, water law, ecological resilience in the law, climate change adaptation, and the relationships between environmental law and public health. And welcome to the show, Robin. Thank you. Nice to be here. Well, how did you end up uh, studying environmental law and getting involved in water? Did you uh, jump in? I jumped in. I had a long time of figuring out what I wanted to be when I grew up, but I uh, figured out that law school was a good place to be. I ended up at Lewis and Clark School of Law, and I was doing environmental law from day one, and then really lucked out and got to work for the Oregon Department of Justice uh, for the attorneys that represented Oregon's environmental agencies, and uh, immediately jumped into coastal zone management issues and water issues for the state, so was hooked from then on. Well, tell us a little bit about the... Uh water involvement that you have in terms of this particular act that we're discussing today, the Marine Protection Research and Sanctuaries Act. Well, the Marine Protection Research and Sanctuaries Act of 1972 is one of the first round of environmental statutes that Congress passed. And it's one of the few that's really directed toward protecting the marine environment. So if you've got the Clean Air Act in 1970, Clean Water Act in 1972, the Endangered Species Act in 1973, this is the ocean part of that series 
series of statutes that a very prolific set of Congresses were passing in the 1970s. And the Marine Protection Research and Sanctuaries Act is a little interesting because it's got two distinct parts to it. Uh, Title I and Title II are basically the Ocean Dumping Act, and Title III is the National Marine Sanctuaries Act. So as you related, one of the things I do is marine protected areas, but I also do ocean water quality, and this act is related to both. Well, let's talk about the marine protected areas. I think as a scuba diver, I've been in several of those over the years. How do we identify those, and where are they? Well, we actually have 15 national marine sanctuaries right now. There are another five that are going through the process of being designated. So this is a very active time for national marine sanctuaries. And then we have two uh, marine national monuments that were designated through the Antiquities Act that are managed as part of the National Marine Sanctuaries system. And those are the Papahanaumokuakea Kea Marine National Monument uh, in northwestern Hawaii and the Rose Atoll Marine National Monument. These National Marine Sanctuaries are on every coast, uh, including the Great Lakes. The, the most recent one was the Mallows Bay Potomac River National Marine Sanctuary. And uh, as I said, we've got uh, five more in the process. So these protect uh, environmental issues or environmental ecosystems uh, that we care about. And that's what the Papahanaumokuakea Marine National Monument is doing. But they also protect things that we care about in terms of cultural heritage. So uh, the Monitor uh, National Marine Sanctuary protects a sunken civil warship. Wow. And what protections are afforded in these marine sanctuaries? Well, that's part of the fun of the designation process is they can actually vary quite a lot from marine sanctuary to marine sanctuary. It's a, it's a very long designation process usually. And the regulations that come out take account of what's important about that particular marine sanctuary. So for example, the Flower Gardens Bank National Marine Sanctuary in the Gulf of Mexico was put in after there were already oil rigs out there. And so there are oil rigs in the middle of that National Marine Sanctuary. That seems kind of odd. (laughs) It does. It's a very flexible act in the sense of it can protect what we are looking to protect and allow the uses that uh, NOAA and Congress want to continue to allow in a particular area. But a lot of the more recent ones have actually been nominated by their surrounding communities. And that's an exciting part about this act is that that the process allows for coastal communities to say, hey, we want this part of our Great Lake or our coast protected as a national marine sanctuary because we find these things and they list what they find valuable uh, important to protect. Why are these nominated? I mean, what it is it what is it that they're trying to protect? Sometimes it's an important deep sea feature. So one of the uh, nominations that's in process or, or one of the sanctuaries that's in the process of being designated right now would be the new Hudson Canyon uh, National 
marine sanctuary, and that protects a submarine canyon, so one of the deep canyons off the Atlantic coast uh, that starts about 100 miles southeast of New York City. So that's to protect a marine geological feature that's got some special species, special ecosystems uh, that we want to keep safe. On the other hand, uh, one of the processes that started on the West Coast is the Chimash Heritage uh, National Marine Sanctuary. That process started in November 2021. It was nominated in, in July 2015 by the various Chumash tribes, but specifically the Northern Chumash Tribal Council. And that's going to protect 134 miles of California coastline on about 5,600 square miles of California Ocean that are important cultural heritage sites and resource sites for the Chumash tribes in Southern California. So just in those two, you can see uh, the great variety. There, there are... Uh, National Marine Sanctuaries being designated in the Great Lakes, uh, some of those protecting shipwrecks, some of those uh, protecting the ecosystems of the Great Lakes. The Pampahanamukua Kea Marine National Monument, as I mentioned, protects coral reefs, as do most of the National Marine Sanctuaries in the Pacific Ocean. So there's just a variety of things that National Marine Sanctuaries protect. Let's say that I'm a surfer. Down okay. here at, at Trestles, which I am not, but uh, let's say that somebody says, "I want to protect Trestles. I want it as a as a just an individual, regular old everyday person." Can they start one of these marine sanctuaries? They can start the proposal process, certainly. They can nominate it through NOAA's nomination process, and then that will be reviewed uh, through NOAA. As I mentioned, it's a fairly long and public process, so NOAA has to decide that this is worth designating, and there are steps it has to take to come up with a proposal, including defining what the marine sanctuary would be and why it's being designated. It's going to have to go through an environmental impact statement under the National Environmental Policy Act, or NEPA. There's going to be time and opportunity for public consultation uh, and public comment on that process. Uh, and eventually it goes through an approval either by NOAA or by Congress, uh, depending on how important it gets and how thorny it gets to be designated. So, yes, you can start the process. But as I mentioned, some of the, the newest ones were nominated in 2015 and are just now uh, going through the, the last phases of the designation process. It sounds like it's an amazing and kind of complicated process. When did this, so in the last, they've been the last 50 years that these 15 marine sanctuaries have been created? Correct. Yeah, since 1972. And and that kind of went in phases. So there was a, a spate of them early on. And then it got very difficult to get National Marine uh, Sanctuaries designated. Uh, and in fact, the one in Florida and the Florida Keys uh, finally had to go through Congress because uh, NOAA was having a hard time getting it done uh, because of various public participation and various public controversies over how it should be used. And as a result, uh, for a couple of decades now, since... Uh, uh, President uh, 
George W. Bush, presidents have been relying on the Antiquities Act and going through the Na uh, Marine National Monuments route, which a president can just designate. Uh, and that's how we got a lot of the big Pacific Coral Reef National Marine Monuments. Um, and that's how we got the first one off the coast of the Atlantic Ocean. So it's nice to see that the, the process for designating National Marine Sanctuaries which is, in fact, more public, more participatory, uh, more voices get to have their say about what the sanctuary should be and what it should protect and what it should allow. It's nice to see that that got a jump start again uh, in the last decade or so. Well, let's talk about what happens after it gets designated. How does the laws that affect that particular marine sanctuary get enforced? That enforcement is done primarily through NOAA and the Coast Guard, and there are regulations for each sanctuary about what is allowed and what's not. But in general, you're not allowed to take sanctuary resources uh, out of the National Marine Sanctuary. You're not allowed to destroy the sanctuary resources. Uh, recreation is almost always allowed. Uh, sometimes you need permits for it. Sometimes you need a guide. Fishing may or may not be allowed, depending on what the sanctuary is for. And then there's some special things, like I, I mentioned, the flower garden banks. You have oil platforms out there, and they're allowed to continue to operate. So there, there's some general prohibitions in the statute, but then really it is a, a process of formulating what's going to be allowed or not in each sanctuary with various levels of enforcement. Sometimes states help out. Um, so, you know, sometimes it's the Coast Guard, sometimes it's NOAA. There's just a variety of people involved in the enforcement. You know, we've heard a lot about climate change and coral bleaching. Is there anything in the marine sanctuaries that protect the coral? Well, that's some of the, the reasons for designating those big ones in the Pacific. So the Florida Keys National Marine Sanctuary was the first national marine sanctuary to protect uh, tropical corals. But Florida is already being hard hit by climate change and warming oceans that cause bleaching. And a lot of those corals are being listed under the Endangered Species Act. In contrast, some of the Pacific tropical coral reefs are in better shape. And the sanctuaries and, and national marine monuments are bigger. So they allow for some adaptation within the sanctuary itself as, as various spawn, coral spawns uh, can spread throughout the sanctuary into other places as well. And one of the important parts of the Papahanaumokuakea Marine National Monument was that tropical coral reef was already on the cold temperature edge of where tropical coral reefs can survive. So as the oceans warm, that Marine National Monument, which is part of the National Sanctuary System, may be one of the last healthy tropical coral reefs on the planet. And so it's very much a stewardship act on the part of the United States for the world. Uh, you know, it, things in that coral reef may help to uh, keep uh, or to replenish and support the reefs all around the, the tropical Pacific. Right. Well, Robin, at this time, we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. We'll be right back. 
Learn by doing with Practicing Law Institute's award-winning on-demand interactive programs. Developed by experts in learning design, these immersive programs incorporate the latest in research-based instructional design and technology, allowing you to try out concepts, challenge yourself, and grow your skills using real-world scenarios. With programs focusing on professional development, client-facing skills, and law practice management, you can earn CLE while you learn. Launch now at pli.edu interactive or download PLI's mobile app. Filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures, all critical parts of the litigation process, yet ones that are time-consuming and error-prone. But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software? InfoTrack automates data entry, document selection, tracking, and information syncing across all these core tasks and more by integrating with your core systems like Clio, Smokeball, Leap, MyCase, and others. Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at infotrack.com simple. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm joined by Professor Robin Craig, the Robert C. Packard Trustee Chair in Law from USC Gould School of Law. We've been talking about the Marine Protection Sanctuaries Act. Robin, let's talk a little bit about the National Coastal Monitoring System. How does that work? Uh, the National Coastal Monitoring System is there to help give early warning, to help scientists figure out what's going on in our coasts. And it's run through NOAA, and it's part of the, the science part of the Marine Protection Research and Sanctuary Act. So that's what gives us warnings about tsunamis after there's been an earthquake in the ocean? Uh, as one thing, yes. Uh, it helps with hurricanes, uh, other major storms. And wave heights, if I remember correctly. Some buoys out there that tell us how bad and how high the waves are. Exactly, exactly. So it's part of our uh, weather system, part of our coastal warning system for many, many things. Do you think this act has been over overly successful or do you think we have a long way to go? Uh, in terms of, well, it's various parts. We haven't talked about the Ocean Dumping Act yet. I think the Ocean Dumping Act part of it has been incredibly successful. Let's jump into that. Can you describe what it covers? Yeah, so the Ocean Dumping Act is pretty much exactly what it sounds like. It covers dumping of almost anything into the ocean. As I said, the act was it came into being in 1972. Part of what prompted the Ocean Dumping Act parts of it was in 1968, there was a National Academy of Sciences report that detailed just how much junk we have disposed of into the ocean, particularly in the aftermath of World War II uh, and the Cold War. And that included things like 55,000 drums of new nuclear waste uh, still out there in the ocean. Uh, you may remember some of that was just recently discovered off the coast of California. So these things come back to haunt us. And that report was kind of a wake-up call. 
Now, this was an international issue as well. So uh, our Ocean Dumping Act is our way of implementing the uh, what's known as the London Convention of 1972. So this is an international treaty. Uh, its full title is the Convention on the Prevention of Marine Pollution by Dumping Waste and Other Matter, uh, which is why everybody refers to it as the London Convention. Uh, and so uh, we are a party to that treaty, and the Ocean Dumping Act is in part our way of implementing that treaty. But it, it prohibits the transportation of material from the United States out to be dumped in the ocean, and it prohibits uh, dumping of waste from other place in the U.S. territorial sea. Uh, and so it, it ends all of that view of the ocean as the world's garbage disposal and realizes that putting toxic waste, hazardous waste, nuclear waste into the ocean does actually not get rid of the problem. So it's been very successful. It ended pretty much immediately, the, the toxic dumping, uh, and then put in some regulations for things that are, are more benign, like uh, dumping of clean dredged materials out at sea, for example. Right. Well, this would also apply to harbors and pleasure boats and cruise ships and the like. Is that right? It does. It applies to anybody who wants to dump anything, including trash. My personal favorite part of the act is it actually does cover burials at sea. So there, there is a general permit you can get from the EPA if you want to do a burial at sea, but that technically is ocean dumping. So it is covered by the act. It, it covers disposal of vessels at sea. So if you want to create an artificial reef, that's covered under the Ocean uh, Dumping Act. It covers uh, disposal of marine mammal carcasses. It technically applies to disposal of fish waste, but there's an exception for that. But you do, it is regulated inside harbors or other enclosed areas. So it really is a broad act. So it also applies to, uh, how far, actually, I guess the question is, how far out does it apply? Do we have a, this famous 12 mile limitation or are we now <laughs> out 200 miles or are we in international waters? How far do we claim this thing goes? The dumping from outside is limited to the U.S. territorial sea, which in 1972 was only three miles off the coast of the ocean. Uh, but in terms of taking stuff out to sea, uh, the United States can regulate under international law out to 200 nautical miles from our coast. And we regulate pollution of the ocean through that full 200 nautical miles. Now, obviously, we care about things more the closer they are to shore. But uh, in terms of our own waste going out to sea, uh, we, we, we protect pretty much the whole 200 nautical miles. Right. Well, he mentioned uh, getting a permit to have a burial at sea. There's a lot of people that go out to the ocean and dump ashes. Is that permitted? Uh, it would be covered by a general permit, yes. So a, a general permit means you're allowed to do it or you have to go to the EPA and get one? It means that there is a permit in place that if you comply with the the general conditions of that permit, which almost any dumping of ashes would, uh, your dumping of ashes is covered. You you are technically permitted. Excellent. Well, that's good to know. 
And you said you can't dump fish waste, but there's an exception. How does that exception work? I mean, is this for uh, lobstermen and uh, fishing vessels that are out working? Pretty much, yeah. The The recognition was if you're a working fish, fishing vessel, you know, you're going to be dumping fish or parts of fish back into the ocean. It's organic. It will decompose. It's particularly if you're not in an enclosed space, and that is the exception where you do need a permit to be able to do it. The recognition was just made, although that even though this is technically ocean dumping, it's not going to be as harmful, particularly if you're a ways out from shore. And a lot of the big fishing vessels do go a ways from shore. So, um, like I said, no permit required for dumping of fish waste unless you're in an enclosed space or it's a particularly ecologically sensitive area that the EPA has de uh, designated as such. So the end of a fish pier is okay? Uh, yeah, Probably don't want to be doing a whole lot of fish waste at the end of a fish pier, but uh, you might get in trouble with with uh, local officials as well. <laughs> so, right. Well, Robin, we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. We'll be right back. Hey, Gee, what's up? Just having some lunch, Conrad. Hey, Gee, do you see that billboard out there? Oh, you mean that guy out there in the gray suit? Yeah, the gray suit guy. There's uh, all those beautiful, rich, leather-bound books in the background. That is exactly the one. That's J.D. McGuffin at Law. He'll fight for you! I bet you he has got so many years of experience. Like decades and decades. And I bet, Gee, I bet he even went to a law school. Are you a lawyer? Do you suffer from dull marketing and a lack of positioning in a crowded legal marketplace? Sit down with Guy and Conrad for Lunch Hour Legal Marketing on the Legal Talk Network, available wherever podcasts are found. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm joined by Professor Robin Craig, the Robert C. Packard Trustee Chair in the, from the USC Gould School of Law. We've been talking about the Ocean Dumping Act portion of the uh, case we've been talking about today. Let's talk about enforcement. Again, it's Coast Guard that's out there doing this? Uh, pretty much, yeah. On, on the Ocean Dumping Act, you're going to be dealing with the Coast Guard. And what's the idea behind the uh, ocean dumping? I mean, obviously keeping pollution out of the water, but you talked about things that are in the water like nuclear waste. And I think recently we've discovered 55-gallon drums of DDT off the coast of California. How does that go about getting cleaned up? Well, that's a different issue. Uh, cleaning up the stuff that's already there is is not covered by the Ocean Dumping Act, and how to do it effectively is actually a, a bit of a can of worms because the the problem with fifty five gallon drums in salt water is they start to decompose. Uh, salt water is good at <laughs> eating up just about anything, uh, ask the U.S. Navy about protecting their ships from salt water. And so getting it cleaned up again is one of the concerns that uh, the world is facing. As I noted, this was a, an international issue, not just the United States. 
you know, retrieving those drums, uh, and we know, we know this even on land, if you're talking about sites on land where 55-gallon drums have been disposed of, this is one reason why we have Superfund and CERCLA, the Comprehensive Environmental Response Compensation and Liability Act, is if they've been there for decades, they're starting to fall apart, and you've got con- contaminated soils. Uh, in the ocean, you know, you, you not only can have contaminated soils and leaking 55-gallon drums, you've got an entire water column to worry about. So if you suspect these drums are leaking, is it better to try pulling them up through 3,000 feet of water? Or are we maybe better trying to figure out some way to dispose of them in place or contain them in place. Uh, And this is a very big quandary for what to do with that legacy pollution. Uh, But in general, that's one of the things that the 1972 environmental statutes did not address very well, and that's why we got on land CERCLA in 1980 at the very end of it, is what to do with those legacy pollution problems. So we still haven't solved that issue, and nobody knows what to do with the nuclear waste and the drums yet. They're still there, rotting away? They're there, rotting rotting away, uh, many of them in very, very deep water, uh, so even... Getting to them is problematic. If you remember the Deepwater Horizon oil spill and the problems getting getting that oil contained at depth or the incredible technology it took to get down to the Titanic, uh, for some of this waste, we're in similar depths and it's just difficult to work in that environment. What realistically, what effect does that have on us? I mean, should we worry? <laughs> well, we kind of don't know. Thankfully, many of those barrels are still intact. Uh, so, uh, whatever's in them, the DDT, the nuclear waste, the other toxics have been contained for now. There is an old saying in water pollution law of all sorts that dilution is the solution to pollution and the ocean is the world's largest, uh, diluting bin. But we don't know. Uh, and, You know, part of what we're learning is coming from incidents like the Fukushima plant and all of the waste, uh, solid and otherwise, that were released into the ocean. Do they disperse? Do they stay concentrated in currents? Uh, How long do they remain recognizable? This is all stuff we are still learning about how the ocean functions and how we can affect that functioning. You hear about microplastics in the ocean. Is there anything that we can do about that? (laughs) That's another good one. Uh, So the microplastics, you're talking about things that are very small to begin with. I, I, to the point where even physically filtering them out, assuming you could do that on at scale in the ocean would be difficult to add to the fun. A lot of the plastics in the ocean have an affinity for attracting some of the other toxics. So the plastic itself becomes more toxic over time. And of course, it looks like food and that gets in the food chain, in the water. 
And so again, we're, you know, the bigger plastics, if you see the, the Great Pacific garbage dump, for example, the bigger plastics, people are coming up with creative ways for both getting it back out of the ocean once it's in, but keeping it from reaching the ocean in the first place. But when you're starting talking about microplastics, anything you would do to filter out the microplastic, would also filter out the microscopic plankton, which are the basis of the food chain in the ocean. So how to separate the two when they're, the, when they're both floating near the surface or just below the surface for the most part is an incredibly difficult problem. And witness to that is that most of us have plastics, microplastics in our bodies. I just read that there was a cave they had been sealed for 30 years and they found microplastics in the air inside the cave. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we've, we've gotten them everywhere and the problem with them being so small is it's hard to find. I mean, plastic by definition isn't magnetic. It, you know, it doesn't have great chemical affinities that you could, you know, pull it out of the water and leave the stuff you want to leave in the water. So that is one of the great pollution conundrums of our time. The statutes like the Ocean Dumping Act and the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act, they did a great job of taking care of the big, obvious low-hanging fruit pollution problems, and now we're finding all of the tough, hard-to-solve, smaller pollution problems that are cumulatively destructive. And killing ourselves. And killing ourselves, yes. Well, Robin, we've just about reached the end of our program, so it's time to wrap up and get your final thoughts along with your contact information. And if you could talk about what it is that we can do as individuals here. Well, remember that the ocean is not away. If I had one message to convey, that is it. Anything that reaches the ocean comes back to haunt us eventually. We are highly dependent on the ocean. Half of the oxygen we breathe is produced in the ocean. A great deal of the world's food security depends on the plants and animals that grow in the ocean. And so we need to treat it with a little more respect. And so try to limit your plastic use. Think about the fish that you eat. But thanks to the Marine Protection Research and Sanctuaries Act, you're not allowed to dump toxics anymore. And you have some very beautiful national marine sanctuaries to go visit. I'm at the USC Gould School of Law. You're welcome to contact me by email. My email is rcraig, R-C-R-A-I-G, at law, L-A-W, dot U-S-C, dot E-D-U. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much, Robin. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you, Craig. Well, here are a few of my thoughts about today's topic. The oceans are tremendously important to us, and we have been treating them as our dumping ground for almost all of our existence, with the exception, perhaps, of the last 50 years. And even then, we've been trying to get away with dumping crap into the oceans. Well, as we said at the end of the program, we're killing ourselves. You know, we've put toxic waste into the oceans, and it's now attaching itself to the microplastics that are floating around the ocean and floating into our food chain. That's a tough one. Along with everything else that's going on in the Earth's atmospheres and on its land and everything else we've talked about this year, it seems somewhat of a dire picture. The uh, Paris Accords on the climate change have just been violated. The temperature for the Earth has just now gone over that amount. 
our corals are bleaching, our food supplies are dwindling, and we need to get on and do something about it. I gave a speech in 2009 at James Madison University at its graduation titled, We Didn't Start the Fire. Well, my generation didn't, the generation before didn't, it's just been going since then. And in a way, our oceans are on fire now, and we're handing this mess to a younger generation that's coming up and perhaps not caring as much as it needs to about what's happening. It's time to get out there and do something about it. Well, that's my rant for today. And let me know what you think for the podcast. If you like what you heard today, please rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting app. You can also visit us at illegaltalknetwork.com or you can sign up for our newsletter. I'm Craig Williams. Thanks for listening. Please join us next time for another great legal topic. Remember, when you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.